Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again this week. Thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to join us. We've been doing this series called Roadmap to Reformation, and for the last several months, we've been looking at the 12 gates of Nehemiah and how they fit in the whole scope of restoration and reformation. We have, I think, over the last 40-some weeks been sharing this series, and I think you'll be blessed if you've missed any of them to go back to our YouTube channel or to our podcast or the RSS feed for your Android device to watch anything that you've missed, because I think this is a phenomenal series that we have shared, and I'm so thankful that they are archived for people to be able to get them. We're making the comparison of how Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra builds the temple, Nehemiah rebuilds the city, and we are making the comparison as to in the new covenant, the temple of God is not a building in the Middle East, it is a people. Paul the apostle said, what? Know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. And then we also see that in the New Covenant, the city of God, uh, throughout several places, not just Revelation, but especially in the book of Revelation, the city of God is defined as the bride, the Lamb's wife. It is defined as, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And uh, we uh, showed you how Revelation chapter 3 says to him who overcomes, I will write upon him the name of my God. He said, first of all, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and then he will go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. And we talked about how the city of God is coming down from God out of heaven because the city of God is not where you go when you die. It's where you went when you got born again. You got translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His dear Son. Hebrews 12 tells us in contrast to, uh, he says, for you have not come to blackness and darkness. You've not come to fear and trembling. You've not come to a God who said, if you touch the edge of the mountain, you will be thrust through with the dark. And we've compared how that mount was Mount Sinai, where the law was given, Old Covenant. But he says, but you have come. The next verse in Hebrews 12 says, but you are come. You're not marching to, but you have already come to Mount Zion. The contrast there is Sinai, Old Covenant, Mount Zion, New Covenant. But you have come to Mount Zion, and the Scripture declares you have come to the city of our God. In Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking for a city whose chief architect was God, but in Hebrews 12 he found it. And that city is the New Covenant community of faith of which the apostles spoke and said that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being a chief cornerstone, and Jesus Himself declared, you are a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. We made a contrast in Revelation between a tale of two cities, and we showed you how the harlot great Babylon in her was found the blood of all the martyrs, and Jesus connects that 
in Matthew 23 and says to Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered you under my feathers, but fill up the measure of your father's sin that upon that generation would come the blood of all of those that were martyred, that they had killed the prophets and stoned them that were sent to them. But immediately upon the judgment of that harlot city, which we have declared over the past several months and showed you that destruction of that city was in AD 70, when the Roman legions came and destroyed the city, destroyed the temple and the tabernacle and the city of God. And an old Jerusalem and an old temple faded off of the scene in a new Jerusalem and a new city of God, the community of faith began to come on the scene. An old heaven and an old earth passed away, which was dealing with a covenant and a new heaven and a new earth came on the scene. One of the things that I was thinking as we were going to talk about the gates again today is that the scripture tells us in the book of Revelations, one of the prime thing, I, I, I mean the book of Revelation, not book of Revelations, but the book of Revelation uh, declares is that uh, her gates will never be shut. I think that's a fantastic, uh, you know, the, the, the book does not end in doom and despair. It ends with an invitation where the Spirit and the Bride are saying, come. And I believe today there's still a declaration from the Spirit of God, and the Spirit and the Bride are saying, come. I think for years the Spirit has been saying, come, and the Bride seems to want to push people away. But I think there is a massive shift in our thinking and now the Spirit and the Bride are saying, come, let him that's thirsty come and drink of the water of life without cost. At least it didn't cost you anything, it cost him everything so that you can drink of the water of life freely. Out of that river flows, out of that city flows a river, and that river is a river of life. It flows from a slain lamb. It comes from the revelation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. I believe that we are in time uh, looking at a season where God is bringing back a real apostolic reformation built upon the apostles' doctrine, the original apostles' doctrines. And the foundation of that and the centrality of that is Christ and His finished work. It is out of that that the, that the, the church has been presented according to Ephesians 5, that He presented us to Himself not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. The Word declares there, you know, people misquote that Ephesians 5 text constantly, saying that Jesus is coming back for a church, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. But that's not what that Scripture says. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, and gave Himself for her, that He may wash her by the washing of the water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. That's not something He's going to do. That's something He already did in His redemptive work on Calvary's tree, is He presented us to Himself, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing, that we might uh, be married. Uh, Romans 7 uh, declares that we should be, Romans 7 verse 4, that we should be married to another, even to Him who is raised from the dead. That's not something out in our future. That's something that happens in the new covenant. The new covenant is our marriage certificate. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but we've been talking about the 12 gates. In Revelation, these 12 gates are made of one several pearl, 
And we told you earlier how that the pearl speaks of a pearl of great price. And of course, we know that Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. It's like a man who sought for goodly pearls. And when he found a pearl, he sold all that he had to buy that pearl. And I really believe that that's really uh, uh, speaking somewhat even of Jesus who emptied himself of all his divine attributes and came, humbled himself, became a servant that he might redeem and buy the pearl of great price hidden in a field. And through his suffering and his redemption, he has now given us access by faith into this grace where we can enter into the gates of the city. And we went through how each one of these gates that Nehemiah was restoring was somewhat a picture of something that God wanted to restore into the church. We are now in the 11th gate. We have one more to do, and we may or may not get to it here in the next couple of weeks, but we will see, and we're, going to, we're just going to take our time. But the 12th chapter of Nehemiah, verse number 39, is the gate I want to deal with today. This is the 11th gate in the book of Nehemiah that we have studied. In verse number 39, it says, from the, And from the above gate of Ephraim, and above the old gate, and above the fish gate, and above the tower of Hananiel, and the tower of Mia, even under the sheep gate, and they stood still in the prison gate. Now, I want to I want to share with you some things uh, about the prison gate that I believe are powerful. And in order to do that, I want us to go to Isaiah because it talks about Jesus being taken from prison. If we don't see the redemptive work of what Jesus did in His redemptive work, we are never going to be set free from the captivities that have held us. And I'm reading this to you from the New King James Version. This is Isaiah 53. He said, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, uh, you know, I a number of years uh, ago was preaching with uh, the late Dr. T.L. Osborne in, in Georgia, and he was preaching from this verse, and the Lord just really spoke to me through this verse, and I could see this vision almost of an arm and hammer bacon soda box where God rolls up his sleeve and, and bears his holy arm and just kind of flexes his muscle a little bit. And I could see this almost like an arm and hammer bacon soda box, if you could picture that in your mind. And the Lord said to me, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? His strength and His power and His might and His mighty hand. I'm going to tell you, when God rolls up His sleeve and makes bare His holy arm, when God arises, His enemies are scattered. And so I'm sitting there thinking that, and I'm seeing this vision in my mind of this arm and hammer bacon soda box and this arm rolled up, and, and, and the Lord said, Who will see the arm of the Lord revealed? And I know it's very simple, but it's right in this text. It said, Whoever has believed the report. And then that cute little song comes into our mind, you know, whose report will you believe? We will believe the report of the Lord, and I'm not knocking that. But what he's saying here is that the arm of the Lord is revealed to those who will believe the report of the rest of this chapter in Isaiah. Because it goes on to talk, this is one of the most powerful messianic scriptures of redemption that I believe you can find in the Bible. It said, He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we see Him there's no beauty that we should desire Him. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Everything he did in his redemptive work, he was despised and rejected so that we could be accepted. He was a man of sorrows so that we could be comforted. He was acquainted with grief so we, our mourning days could end. And we hid as it were our faces from him, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. We did not value or appraise what was really happening in this redemptive work. But it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. In other words, you know, he was telling them that we, we esteemed him. In other words, we thought he was being punished for his own sin, but the reality of it is he was not being punished for his own sin, and, uh, but he was, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was a spotless lamb of God, and, and uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. You know, as I think about bruising, I think about an internal bleeding. He not only bled externally to redeem us from all of our external problems and all of our external sins and all of our visible problems, but he was bruised. He bled internally because there's in, in the blood that was bled internally and the bruising, he literally bled internally to deal with all of your internal struggles, to deal with all of your brokenness and all of your hurt and your emotions and your uh, uh, depressions. And, uh, you know, he wore a crown of thorns to redeem you from all of the thoughts of the prickly thoughts of thorns that torment you. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. In other words, he took what you had coming so he could, you could get what he has coming. And by his stripes, we are healed. He took the stripes on his back on uh, the whipping post. And I think with every stripe that cut across his back, he said, there goes cancer. There goes sugar diabetes. There goes heart trouble. There goes COVID-19. I believe he was wounded for our transgressions, but he was bruised for, and the chastisement for our peace was on him by his stripes. We are healed. And I think sometimes when we meditate on these verses, in other words, if you believe that report, the arm of the Lord can be revealed to you. You know what? I kind of feel like while I'm sharing this right now that Somebody's watching me that's probably just had a, a bad report from your doctor. And I want you, you're hearing this word, and I want you to take this scripture and meditate on it. Jesus took your disease, and I want you to think about this disease as not, you know, as, it, as, as that disease being whipped. Not just Jesus suffering, but think of that disease as being beat and whipped and destroyed out of your life. And you meditate because if you believe the report that he bore our infirmities and our weaknesses and our sin and our iniquities, he took all of our brokenness, all of our bruising, all of our anxieties. And somehow in every aspect of his redemptive work, something very powerful is transpiring. And I believe healing can be yours and God is rolling up his sleeve right now and making bare his holy arm. And you can feel that anointing, I believe, even coming through this camera right now as God touches your body and heals your body as you grasp and lay hold of by faith the word of God that I'm sharing with you. Who has believed the report 
To him the arm of the Lord is revealed, and God will show his strength, and whether it's an emotional healing, whether it's a mental thing, uh, you know, is that to see that, you know, I think sometimes we are tormented even with some of our past history and things of guilt and condemnation. And sometimes I think even some of the sickness that comes even in the church is sometimes a result of people preaching the wrong covenant that lays condemnation and guilt on you that somebody says, well, I deserve this or I'm getting what I've got. Listen, I'm going to tell you, if we all got what we deserved, we, we, we'd be in bad shape. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus took what you had coming so you can get what he has coming. And if you can receive that today and believe the report of the Lord, God will roll up his sleeve and make bare his holy arm. And it goes on to say, you, you know, because a, a minute ago, like I said, I, here we are, we say, well, you know, well, maybe this is something I deserve. And, you know, well, you know, if, if, that gets on a slippery slope if you're going to try to give it to people who are only qualified. Because I've seen God heal some people and deliver some folks that you didn't think was qualified. Not because they're good, but because he's good. And, uh, you know, when God does something so phenomenal like that, it's not a, uh, it's not a, uh, a, 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 a reward for our good behavior, but it's a trophy of the grace of God and how God has absolutely done some things on our behalf. Because it goes on to say in the very next verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every last single one of us. Uh, he, he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Watch this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison. I want you to see that because I want to talk about the prison gate over the next couple of weeks. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken and he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities, Therefore, while I divide him a portion with the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. I want to talk about this a minute because I think it's so powerful that when you see he was delivered into prison and he was delivered from prison so that you could be set free from whatever bondage or prison that you were in. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? You know, I was thinking, uh, I've done this for several years as far as an example. When I talk about uh, the sin offering, especially, you know, I think it's so powerful how we can look back at the Old Testament, which is full of types and shadows and pictures. It gives us a language 
in picture form of how to kind of communicate the gospel at least to some dimension. But with the sin offering of the Old Testament, they would bring a spotless lamb before a priest. And when they would bring that spotless lamb before the priest, you would have the priest, you would have the sinner, and then you would have the lamb. And the priest or the, the sinner would bring his spotless lamb before the priest. He would then lay his hands, well, they would first of all examine the lamb to see that the lamb was spotless. And then they would have to declare whether or not it was a spotless lamb. Now this, Isaiah 53 is declaring he had done no violence. There was no guile in his mouth. Uh, uh, there was no iniquity in him. He was the spotless lamb of Calvary. And when John the Baptist was standing in the Jordan River and points up over the bank of the Jordan, he said, right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All through the Old Covenant, they covered them over, and they were, uh, they were, they were just covered, but they were not taken away. But in the New Covenant, God removes our iniquities and our sin as far as the East is from the West. And I think about a cross, how far is that from the East to the West? It's how far He spread His arms out and took all of your iniquity on Him. But He was uh, you know, goes on to say that he was uh, a man acquainted with grief and with sorrow and uh, was a man that was, uh, you know, uh, uh, made his grave with the wicked who was beaten beyond probably recognition. He was oppressed and reflect, uh, uh, afflicted. He was uh, like a lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth and he was taken from prison and from judgment. In other words, he bore your judgment. But as they would bring that uh, lamb before the high priest, and the, the sinner would then, after the lamb was inspected, and of course you know the story of how he was examined by Pilate. Pilate washes his hands and said, this is innocent blood. You see to it. And even Judas himself, who was the betrayer, the scripture calls him a devil, even the devil himself had to testify on the behalf of Jesus, who had walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, traveled with Jesus, would go back to the temple and take the 30 pieces of silver that, by the way, Zechariah prophesied about, which would be the cost of buying him out of that covenant. And they threw it and to break the, the beautiful covenant. Go back and see Zechariah where he talks about they paid 30 pieces of silver. What will you give me to buy me out of the covenant? And they weighed out for me 30 pieces of silver. But Judas himself, whom the scripture calls a devil, had to testify on behalf of Jesus and say, I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what you see to it, what is that to us? And so with it, they bought the potter's field, the field of blood where they buried strangers in. And I talked about that when we were talking about, the, I believe it was the valley gate that led, led into the valley of Hinnom where was the potter's field. We talked about that back at that gate. But what I want you to see is, is that when the sinner would lay his hands on the head of that lamb, he would confess his sin. In other words, he is transferring his sin onto the lamb. And so when he translated his hands on the head of that lamb and, and, and confessed his sin, that lamb opened out his mouth and took the sin that belonged to you. And then they would take that lamb, they would cut its throat, they would, the blood would be shed, the, that lamb would be offered 
as a sacrifice. Here's the thing that I think is so powerful about that demonstration. When I do that a lot of times in a service, I'll do it where I have a person come up who's the sinner, I'll have them bring another person who's a lamb, and I'll have a high priest standing there. And the, the sinner will lay his hand on the head of the lamb, and then he'll hand it to the priest. And then I'll tell the, the sinner now to step back while the priest examines the lamb. And the exam is the lamb, and he says, well, this is a spotless lamb. And so I said, then you're saying to me that this lamb is now qualified to bear the sin of this man. Yes. And so, but what I want you to see is that as this sinner is standing back, I look at the congregation, I say, but what I want you to notice is the sinner is not examined. It is the lamb that's examined. In other words, the basis of your acceptance into the beloved is not on the basis of how good you are. It was on the basis of how good the sacrifice was and how spotless the sacrifice is. And the sinner is never examined. But what we do in the American church almost every week is we go back and we examine the sinner instead of examining the lamb. And if we're examining the sinner, we're examining the wrong man. But when we start to examine uh, the lamb, and we start to declare this, this, the sacrifice is accepted, it ought to set the captive free from whatever prison of bondage he is in. See, it's not just the forgiveness of sin that God has done in your life. It is the removal of sin. When you see your sin laid on Him, you've got to come. I believe one of the things that you can view, and we might see this when we start talking about the Mifkad gate, is that there was a judgment that took place there, and actually was a judgment seat of Christ. But when you can stand at that cross, and you can stand at that place of sacrifice and say, this judgment was my judgment. In other words, he didn't just die for me, he died as me. And according to the book of Romans, he did it to condemn, not, not to make God happy or to satisfy God's wrath, but he did that, according to Romans 8, to condemn sin in the flesh so that you and I could begin to walk in the newness of life and not in the oldness of the letter. And so with that being said, I think it is so powerful that we recognize that it is an understanding of His redemptive work that begins to set us free from the prison of whatever kind of bondage of sin that we are in. We must continue to come to the table, and like the children of Israel, they, let, they ate lamb in the night, roast with fire, until they started to feed on that finished, can I say it like this, they fed on the finished work of Jesus Christ until something rose up and said, I can't live in this bondage anymore. And they began to escape from the prison of Egypt. Feeding on lamb will make you escape. Well, we're out of time for this one. We will come back and talk about the prison gate again. But if you are enjoying what we're doing and sharing the gospel this way, please get behind what we're doing by going to our website. And there's a link there where you can give via credit card or PayPal. You can also call the number on the screen and someone will take your uh, call and uh, you, you can give that way with credit card. Or you can send a check or a money order to the address that will come up on the screen. Uh, that's a very easy way to do it and it would be a blessing if you could help us to do that. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. 
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.